I'll ask you to turn your Bible to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. <clears throat> As I bring to you God's word, on the topic, almost a Christian. Almost a Christian. Let's read from verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one, and there is none other besides him. And to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Our Father, who art in heaven, we have come once more before your word this blessed Lord's Day. And we ask that you would grant us the help of your Spirit, that we may have understanding, insight, and illumination into your word. Bless us, O God, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. I don't know how many people watch football here, but from my own estimates, a number of people that are seated before me have watched a game of football or at least watched a few games. Even if it's World Cup Finals, they watch once in a while. Now, in recent years, the game of football has been developing. Once upon a time, what people call football is basically you have a traditional formation, 4 4 3, and then you hit the ball, you go and score. But over time, football began to evolve. And so people began to use data science for football analysis. And data science is basically, you're, you're gathering data, basically, to analyze a game of football. So you begin to hear different kinds of terms, like XA and XG. Now, XG is expected goals. That is, after a game of football, you use numbers, you use mathematics to calculate how many goals a team would have scored. Not how many goals they scored. How many goals they would have scored. And a lot of things goes into the go, go into this calculation. You are calculating what was the angle of the shots. 
What is the distance between the goalpost and where the person shots the ball from? For example, if I'm from my own post in a football pitch and I shoot the ball, it's very, it's a very low chance. I have a very low chance of scoring. Are we together? But if I'm close in front of your penalty, if I'm in your penalty box and I shoot the shot, the chances will be higher. You know the only problem I have with that statistics? Almost goals are no goals at all. At the end of the day, it is not how many goals you would have scored that matters. Case in point, on the 28th of May 2022, there was a Champions League match, the final of the UEFA Champions League between Liverpool and Real Madrid. And in that match, Liverpool should have scored approximately two goals. They had an XG of 1.98. And Real Madrid should have scored one goal. They had an XG of 0.85. But guess who won that match? Real Madrid with one goal. So Liverpool had a, almost won it. And if you watch that game, in your mind, at the end of the game, people will be talking, he didn't want the first half, they played well. At the end of the day, it's not whether they played well or they did not play well. The point is, did you score the goal? Did you score the goal that won the match? In the game of football, I'm using this illustration to drive the point. All those goals are useless. Ten years down the line, nobody will remember whether you almost scored five goals. In their mind, this person won. This person is the person who scored. To have an almost goal is to almost score or not really score. You are almost there, but you cannot grab it. And even in the secular world, people don't have regard for the almost person. So if you come in a crowd of people and you are talking and you say, I went to university, they ask you, what did you graduate with? I say, I almost graduated, but I dropped out. Nobody listens to you. The point is, what did you graduate with? You went to school. After four years, what do you have to show for it? Nobody has you that for the almost man. In the history of the world, there were many people who almost invented something. People actually tried to invent the aeroplane uh, before the Wright brothers. The people had done it, but they were almost. The only person you remember is the person who actually invented it. Almost. Almost. And even in, uh, I mean, in, in, in Christianity, the Bible has a few illustrations of people who were almost there. They were almost there, but they did not make it in terms of putting their faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 26, Paul was speaking to a man called Agrippa. Agrippa the king was burying his wife. And after Paul had spoken to him, he told Paul, he said, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Almost. Almost. And I put it to the point, and Paul told him, Agrippa, you know the law and the prophets. You know these things. These are not strange things to you. But a man who is almost a Christian is not a Christian. It's not a Christian. A man who always accomplishes something or stops short is as good as a man who did not accomplish it. So when you are calculating the clubs that have won the Champions League, nobody calculates the people who almost won it. Who has won the World Cup? Who has won? Who scored the goal? Who won the match? And in this talk that I bring you to God's word in Mark chapter 12, 
The entire book of Mark is such a fast-paced book. In other words, Mark doesn't even calm down to teach, explain. If you read the gospel according to John, you have a lot of commentary. John is trying to explain what this thing means. Uh, like the part we read this, this evening, even in John chapter 1, John has a lot of commentary telling us about Jesus, telling us about his, not just giving us the fact. But Mark is concerned about the acts of Jesus Christ. Mark was probably the first gospel written. And Mark does not want to really teach us so much in terms of giving us commentary, by way of commentary. It's just full of acts. Boom, 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 boom. 16 chapters and the book is over. And in the book of Mark, we can divide the book of Mark into three rough structures. From Mark chapter 1 to chapter 8, we see the ministry of Jesus majorly around Galilee. From Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 10, we have Jesus prophesying about his death, foretelling his death three different times. But from Mark chapter 11, there is a shift. We are in Mark chapter 12. So in Mark chapter 11, there is a shift. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus enters into Jerusalem triumphantly. And as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, they were welcoming him and everything, and he went to the temple. And when Jesus got to the temple, he saw people selling, buying and selling the temple. And what did Jesus do? He scattered them and drove everybody away. And later on in there, and came back again. And when he came back, the elders and the, the Jewish leaders met him and asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And so Jesus was now in a crowd of people. And one by one, they began to attack him. First, the Pharisees came in chapter 12 that we are in from verse 13 to 17. The Pharisees were asking him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And the Pharisees were basically trying to, like, they want him to make a mistake. You know when you, you know that somebody believes something, but you are trying to see whether he will say it the way it is, when you watch a lot of political commentary. Let this man say what he really has in mind. And he wanted to trip him off. They wanted to trip him up, make, make him make a mistake. So that at least we can say, Jesus said this. And after the Pharisees finished, the Sadducees came. The Sadducees had issues with resurrection. And they asked him in Mark chapter 12, verse 18 to 27, that if a woman married one man, and the man died, and the concept of leverage marriage, we were talking about yesterday at the singles conference, and then she married the first, second, third, and she finished, went to the whole seven brothers. That in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus said, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, there is no marriage nor given in marriage. And after these two, these people are finished. The Bible tells us in verse 28 that one of the scribes came up. He was a witness to all this confrontation that they brought before Jesus. And the man was an observer. And he saw them disputing and he asked his own question. And the question he asked was, which commandment is the greatest? The ESV helps us with the most important. But he asked, really, which commandment is the greatest? Now, some people come to this text and say, why is he asking such a question? After all, God has given us his law. What should concern you with what is greatest? No, that, that's not, it's not really a bad question to ask. Because in the Torah, they had about 613 Different commands. That's you can count one, two, three, four, five. You can count 613. And out of that 613, about 248 were positive. So the things you should do. And 365 were negatives. 
the things you should not do. So the man is asking, out of these 613, which one is the most important? Which one is the greatest? Perhaps, maybe that's the one I should focus on. Let me, let me put all my energies there. And even Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 23, one time was talking to the leader, and he told them that uh, you tithe meat and cumin, but you are, you are neglecting the weightier matters of the law. So even Jesus himself had, at one time had alluded to this fact that not all matters are the same. There are some matters in the law that are weightier than others. Are we together? And so this man came and asked Jesus, which is the most important? Reminds me of our days in university when the lecturer said, go and look for a test. The first year I sat, AOC, area of concentration. And some lecturers are, they'll tell you, read everything. They all have taught you. And so let's not actually bad. They'll give you an AOC and in the test that will not come out. But the point when we ask the AOC is it's not as if we don't want to read everything. The point is which part of this whole material you give us a 1000 page handout, which part should we really read? So that's the kind of attitude this man is carrying before Jesus. Which part of the law, where should I put all my energy in? And Jesus answered him, if you look at verse 29. He says, the most important commandment is, and Jesus recites the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 to 5. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is teaching us something that we should not forget as Christians that the law in and of itself is not bad. Jesus goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19 to bring out these two most important elements of the law. There's a kind of Christianity today that says that the law is bad. Everything that, when you hear the law of Moses, you say the law of Moses is bad because we are no longer under law but under grace. If the law is entirely bad, what should Paul have said just in chapter, in Romans chapter 7, that the law is good and the commandment is holy and righteous and good? If the law is bad, why did Jesus, why didn't Jesus just answer this guy and tell him, forget the law? Why do you want to keep the law? The law is an old antiquated thing. Forget the law. This is the error of grace. In fact, some people, because of this passage, have said that the new covenant started after Jesus, that the New Testament, eh, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are part of the Old Testament. So that if you want to understand New Testament realities, start from the book of Acts. Because Jesus was also operating under the dispensation of law and not in the dispensation of grace. But that's not correct. Paul said the law is good. And Jesus, rather than that blame the law upholds the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He upholds the law and gives this man an answer. He answers the man's question honestly. In other words, Jesus is not answering sarcastically. I mean, there are times when Jesus would be a bit sarcastic in his reply to the Pharisees and Sadducees because he already knows their intentions. So when they came to ask him about should we pay taxes, he said, bring out the general whose, whose face is on it. And they said, Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God 
that belongs to God. So this one is giving you a straightforward answer. What is the most important in the law? And Jesus tells him, love God and love your neighbor. And we also see that what Jesus is giving to this man is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be divided into two. And in the first four commandments, we see our duty to God. And in the second half, the sixth commandment, we see our duty to our fellow man. And Jesus is basically telling this guy that the Ten Commandments is what God requires. Keeping the Ten Commandments is what God requires. But look at the seriousness that Jesus is using to say this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Do you know what that means? It means that in every second of the day, for you to actually meet this standard, in every second of the day, in every minute of the day, in every hour of the day, in every day of every week, of every year, you are loving God fully. Jesus did not say with half of your heart, with a quarter of your heart, with some of your heart, with the majority of your heart. You know, one of the things you hear a lot of times is we are trying, you know, we are trying that eh, to serve God is difficult. We are trying our best. Jesus said, This is nothing short of the standard. You know, we're, we're talking this morning in our Sunday school about. Total inability and total depravity. And some people have said in the history of the church, case in Charles Finney. Charles Finney taught that the most important skill that is needed in evangelism is the ability to persuade people. Finney by himself was a trained lawyer. And every trained lawyer who is good at his job knows how to persuade people. So I know how to tell you something just to make you come to my side of the story. And so Finney said the most important thing that a gospel minister should have is persuasion. Persuasion. So, because the only way you can get souls into the kingdom of God is to persuade people. I know what I, I would say to that. Then Jesus was a failure when he came to evangelism. Because clearly Jesus does not try to persuade this man. He tells him as it is. This is what you ought to do. This is what God requires. Complete devotion with your heart. All of your affection. With your soul. All of your desires and feelings. With your mind. Your entire thinking. Every second of the day must be in relation to God. Must be with God at the center. With your strength. Your entire energy. There should be no, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that should come to your mind is God. The first thing, your energy should not be given to sin. Your energy should not be given to that which God has clearly forbidden in this world. Every part of you should be given to God. And know what happens? This man affirms and repeats. Which is very interesting. The reason why I never want to go to the synoptic gospels because the, this story is repeated in Matthew and also in Luke. So you see something similar. I don't think they are similar. My personal opinion from my own study, I don't think they are similar. And the reason is, I believe that during the lifetime of Jesus, I mean, many times, many people would have asked him about the greatest commandment. Because it was a normal question in Judaism. So all of their Hillels and all of their rabbis, they had a say on what is the greatest commandment. And but in this place, 
This is quite interesting to note that this man affirms Jesus. And you ask yourself, how many times did you see the Jewish leader or the scribes affirming Jesus? He affirms Jesus. And look at this, uh, uh, verse 32. He says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one, and there is no other besides him. And he goes on in verse 33 to affirm and repeat what Jesus is saying. Immediately in this story, we see many positives about this man, which we may not see in Mark, in Matthew's account and in Luke's account. This man is not like the other men. Every time people come to Jesus to ask him a question, you know what they are trying to do? They are trying to they, nobody wants to really learn. They want to get him to say something that you not take and go and report and say, Jesus said this. When they asked him about Caesar, they wanted to hear from his mouth that Caesar is not called. Your whole devotion should be to God and everybody should talk to Caesar and nobody should submit to Caesar. When they came to ask Peter about whether his Lord had paid taxes, they had a view in mind. But this man is not like the other men. Moreover, this man is ready to listen. He's, he's, he's ready to be convinced. He's ready to be taught. He's ready to be persuaded. This is something commendable about this scribe. This scribe even praises Jesus. After Jesus had finished, he says, Teacher, you are right. He's a knowledgeable man, and perhaps by his study, he had come to this conclusion, but he wasn't sure there was some doubt in his heart. And the moment Jesus confirmed that doubt in his heart, that, that what he had been thinking, he said, Teacher, you are right. And in verse 34, he says, When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Discreetly, he answered like a knowledgeable person. He did not just open his mouth and talk anyhow. He did not just speak out of turn. He thought about what Jesus had said, responded wisely. Another last thing that is commendable is Jesus says, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Out of all the confrontations Jesus has, has had in the New Testament with the Jewish leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, this is the only time. I really see Jesus commending a person. When the Bible actually tells us something really commendable, positive, and good about that person. But in the good, there is also bad. Because Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are almost there. You are not far, but you are not in. You are close. Very close, but you are not in. You have gotten the fundamentals, you've gotten the basic in fact, you've gotten all the, the, the building blocks basically, but you are not yet in. Friends, there are different proximity, proximities to the kingdom. So that a man can be a million miles away from the kingdom, and a man can be five miles away from the kingdom. The man who is in the dead hollow at this moment is far, far, far from the kingdom of God. And the man, the man who comes to who came to church this morning is nearer than him. If you're unsaved here, you are close to the kingdom of God, I believe. You are close. You are, at least you are in church. And you are singing hymns. And you are saying amen. And you are listening to the word of God. You are close. The problem, however, just like the football illustration I used earlier, whether you are a thousand miles away 
or you are five miles away, or you are 0.02 miles away from the kingdom of God, if you are not in, you are not in. There are basically two categories of people at the end of the day. Sometimes you try to create a third. I was reading a book a few months back, and the author said that there should be a part of our service that is dedicated to people who are almost there. So he's trying to create a third category. I can't remember the exact word they used now. He's the almost there person. And you know what he said? He said you can even give such a person responsibilities in church. Let him join the choir. He's not safe though, but it's close. So make him feel comfortable. Have a community that is always willing to address his questions and do this. No, 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 no. If you are not in, you are not in. There are only two categories of people. Those who are in the kingdom and those who are out of it. Proximity to the kingdom of God is useless if you are not in. The same way you almost got a degree and you did not get a degree. You can't do it wise that way. You can't get a job without almost degree. You can't do anything without almost thing. If it is not it, it is not it. If you are not in the kingdom, you are not in the kingdom. So what was on the one hand positive about this crime, what marked him out, is also something that is cause of war. Because at the end of the story, we do not hear that this guy ever entered the kingdom of God anymore. Man just ends in there. And if this was the state of this man when he walked away from Jesus, then his case ended back. You are not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus told him, but you are not here. What are the characteristics of people who are not far from the kingdom of God? In the first place, such people would have some considerable amount of knowledge about biblical truth, like this man had. So this man was not an illiterate, he knew the Shabbat. He knew, in fact, this is one thing I think we should know from this text. He understood that loving God and neighbor was more important than one of things. He understood, he, he had drawn a dichotomy in his head between the moral law as found in the Decalogue and the ceremonial law. He knew that the ceremonial law in and of themselves were temporary and passing. He had knowledge. This is the problem I believe with some people in church today. They have knowledge. They've read about justification by faith. They've read about sanctification. They know all the words. You know how to define terms. You know how to distinguish things. There's knowledge. And that characteristic is that such a person is usually a church member worker. Because usually, which is a weakness in church today, when somebody exercises a particular amount of knowledge, you give him responsibility. If the person can explain one or two theological terms, we make him a pastor. We tie him down. We tie him down so that he will be an asset to this parish before he leaves to that parish. Give him time to dig him. House fellowship leader, Sunday school teacher, make him a pastor. Because these people will always be seen because they have knowledge and they have skill. They know how things work. This person might also be convicted of sin. The person might be able to weep sometimes when he has sinned or she has sinned. This is how close the person is. Understanding is there. 
But the ultimate problem with this person is that the person is self-deceived. The man who is not far from the kingdom actually thinks he's in the kingdom. The reason why this man, after Jesus told him, you are not far, did not stop and think about it is he thought that he hadn't. So whenever the message is preached about salvation, that turn to Christ and receive forgiveness for sins, he said, I have it. And you come to church Sunday after Sunday, and the pastor says, examine yourself. Or the teacher says, think about this truth. You say, ah, this one will be for me now. Now for people who the control. Then in, in, in your mind, you are thinking, hey, this is the message that Amaka should have heard. This was what I was telling Amaka last night. Eh? That justification cannot be by faith and work. Oh, and how I wish Amaka was here. Okay, let me go and ask the media person. Then you come and meet somebody who is there after I said, Do I have a recording? Recording? I said, Why? Well, I said, I want to share with a friend. Because you think you are in it. And you think you are a Christian. And this is the problem, I believe, with the greater part of the kind of Christianity we practice in our country. You cannot go into any church and they will not tell you, they will not tell you heaven at last. We are on the way to heaven. How do you know you're on the way to heaven? I live rightly, I do things well. How do you know you're on the way to heaven? People can speak the language of the gospel. People can even speak the language of reformed Baptist theology. People can know how to quote the theologians. This is a very serious matter. That a man who is not far from the kingdom will look like the person in the kingdom. May you speak like the person in the kingdom because he's so close, there's proximity. Because he's so close. But see the problem with this guy. The moment Jesus told him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You know what the man would have asked, would have thought, I have never done it. That's the that's the problem. I've never done it. That in every single second of my even just today alone, since this sermon started, who knows the amount of sin that has gone through your heart? Even me, the preacher, the amount of things I've thought about. You've been in church of all day, most of us. Ah, we've not loved God. Ah, not with all of our hearts today. As of all today, you were lazy. And you went on social media. It's the last day. And you're just watching cat videos or children videos. Or whatever you are watching, you are watching comedy. You are not loving God with your energy. You are not loving Him with your strength. You have used your strength unwisely. You've had some kind of phone calls today. You've had some kind of conversations that were not God-centered, and God was not in the in the in the, in the middle. This man should have said, "I have not done this." That's the purpose of the law to convict of sin. That ever since I was born. There is no day I actually kept this commandment. That's what the man should have said. And you know what he would have said to Jesus? How? How? I, I, I am unable to do this. I have been unable to do this. How can a man do this? He was not as wise as those men in Acts chapter 2. After Peter finished preaching at Pentecost, you know what they asked him? Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? You have preached the gospel. You've preached everything. You've traced uh, the history of the nation of Israel and you've told us that this man that died, God has made him Christ and Lord. And then there's forgiveness. What shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter could say to them, repent 
and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Over and over again in the New Testament, people were never content, especially in the book of Acts, we just tell the facts. What can we do? What shall we do? What is our duty? And then Jesus would have told him the house. And there is one that you can believe in. And this is the message of the gospel. That God has a standard. There's no something as being a trial. We just go in. I mean, it's hard. Nigeria is hard. There's no something as that. God's standard remains God's standard. And if a man does not walk with God with all of his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The man who loves God with part of his heart cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why the man Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus appeared. Here is a man who loved God with all of his heart. In every single day he lived upon this earth, his heart and his thoughts were God's word. Here is a man who loved God with all of his mind. Thinking God's thoughts, as it were, after him. Here is a man who loved God with all of his soul and all of his strength. That in the entire 23 and a half years which he spent on the earth, there is no single second where you can look at him and say, Your love is not perfect for God. Here is that man, Jesus. And he said forth to us that when we believe in him, that righteousness, that what he did, will be accounted to us. Because by our strength, we cannot do the kind of God. We can't love him. In fact, even as Christians, we are not loving God perfectly. We are not loving God but you know the only reason why God will not send us away when we are entering the kingdom is because we are entering with another man's perfection, with another man's righteousness. This man was away, but not in because he has not taken the righteousness of Christ. He has not received the righteousness that comes by faith, as Paul put it in the book of the world. This calls us to self-examination. We must ask ourselves, have I really, really been saved? Am I a Christian indeed? It's not that I know all the Christian terms. A man can know all the Christian terms and go to hell. It was Thomas Google who said Judas had every single one of Christ's sermons and yet he went to hell. I'm sure Judas, if Judas were now dead, he would have had roots. He used to take roots in church. And after service, people come and meet, and they are meeting Peter. He said, What are you, you going to do today now? Explain. Judas will be part of them and say, ah, hey. So, what he was saying is that uh, the kingdom is almost here. And Judas will be part of the real ministry. And so, when Jesus sent them two by two, Judas did not stay back at home. He was part of them. But he was not in the kingdom. Judas was a priest. When they were rejoicing that the demons are subject to us, I think Judas was also dancing. If they were singing songs and they were dancing and they were rolling on the floor, Judas was part of them. But he was not in the kingdom. He was not far from the kingdom, but neither was he in it. And so we must ask ourselves Am I really a Christian? Most of the people in our churches are almost Christians, not Christians. Almost Christians. 
And I call you, God calls you to self-examination today. On the last day, you will not tell God. People did that. In Matthew chapter 7, we did a lot of things in your day. We were kingdom financiers. We did a lot of things in your day. We did not sleep at night because we were preparing for conferences. We were doing programs, traveling from city to city. The problem is, you are not in the kingdom. I don't know you. You are never part of the kingdom. And for those of us who are in the kingdom of God, you know what made you enter the kingdom? Christ. You are in the kingdom solely because of Christ. I'm saying this because many of us became Christians before understanding how we were saved. So we became Christians, some of us are Christians for years, walking with God, and later on, your theology became correct. If you are in the kingdom, know that it is not because of anything you did, but because of something one man did. And because his righteous deeds are now accounted to you, therefore you are known to God. But then I must add this. The law is also if you are a Christian. The law is not something you throw away. The fact that Jesus was using this to convict the man of sin does not mean it has no purpose for us. The command of God to us who are his people is that we must love him with all that we are. Unless we say, oh, we have indwelling sin. Of course we have indwelling sin. But we also have indwelling spirit in us. That can enable us to truly, truly love God. And as we step into a new week, this is the, the call of God to us. Love me. At every point in time when a decision is to be taken, at every point in time when something is to be done, God is always in the, the center of ourselves. God is always there. We are living our lives in relation to God. So much so, it seems silly sometimes. People say, Are you pray for food? Okay, oh, God, you have chopped food now. So praying before you eat a meal is such that he's even, he's not asking a child, he's when we are children that parents used to make us of this thing. But the man who is thinking constantly about God looks at that being and says, Ah, God has provided again. And gives him thanks. You are in the car, you go to your place on time. Ah, God has brought me again. And I give him thanks. Now you are you're doing something, God has done this again. God is always at the center of our things. And then we seek to please him every single day of our lives. Let us step into this new week with this at the back of our minds. That Jesus indeed fulfilled the law of God. And those who are in him are righteous and are the kingdom of God. And the Lord bless us for in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Let us pray. Our great Father and our King, we thank you for your word and for the story we considered tonight. Lord, we ask that if there be any who are not yet in the kingdom, who are almost Christians, that you convict and save, that Christ will appear precious, that Christ will appear as the perfect substitute that He is for our sins. And as you step into this new way, our God, we ask you for greater enablement to love you, to serve you, to love our neighbor, to pursue and seek after righteousness. In Jesus' name we have prayed.